This is Pastor Chris, and you're about to listen in on a teaching from Apex, our student ministry at BMHA. At Apex, we prioritize biblical teachings with practical applications for the everyday life of a 6th to 12th grade student. Thank you for listening in on this Apex teaching, and I pray that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. So tonight, we're going to continue our series called Prepared. Prepared is our series that we're in. This is week two. And Prepared is all about apologetics. We're talking about apologetics. And uh, we went through a lot of this information like two years ago. Um, and we went at Fearless, the Fearless Conference, which go to next year. Thank you. Um, the Fearless Conference is in September next year. So make sure you go to that. We went to it this year and it was amazing. And one of the breakouts was about apologetics. And so we talked about... Um, what that means, and, and it reminded me of how important this stuff is, and uh, just kind of God stirred in me and said, you know, we got to do this. So we're doing prepared, and I'm very, very excited to talk about apologetics again. So last week, we introduced this idea of apologetics, and uh, to some of you, some of you know what it means, but some of you have never heard that word before, um, and it just means a defense of your faith, being able to answer questions about your faith, that kind of stuff. And so... We, we've talked specifically last week about, um, through this series, we'll be talking about how do we know God exists. This week, how do we know that the Bible is true? And then next week, how do we know that Jesus was who he says he was? And it's important to remember that no one expects you to have all the answers about Christianity. Like, no one's expecting you to answer the age-old questions that, like, the early church couldn't answer. But apologetics is about having a, a a decent understanding of some of this stuff and being able to know why you believe what you believe. No one expects you to have all the answers, but it's cool to be able to answer some people's questions. People will ask you this stuff. And most of you have probably gotten those questions already. You've gotten big questions before. Um, so even if you've never heard the word apologetics, you have dealt with the principle. You've been exposed to the principle of apologetics. Now, the word apologetics is from a Greek word, apologia. And um, the, if you don't know, the Bible wasn't originally written in English, but it was the New Testament was written originally in Greek. And we can see this Greek word apologia found in 1 Peter 3.15. And this is what it says. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. That answer is the word apologia. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So, so have a reason. Be able to, uh, to explain a reason that you believe why, what you, uh, why you believe what you believe. And there's a slew of different reasons. You can say, um, because I know that God exists because of some of the arguments that Pastor Chris showed me the other night. Or I know that the Bible is true because of what we talked about at Apex. Also an acceptable answer is, I know that God is real because he talked to me. <laughs> because I felt his presence when I was depressed. Because he brought my family out of a really, really dark time. Those are very, very acceptable answers. Those are apologia as well. Um, they're anecdotal, but they work. That is what this verse is talking about. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about some of the tough questions that people give you. And we only have so much time through this series, so we have to be selective about the topics. Um, but tonight, we're going to answer the question, how do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know? Last week, we talked about the existence of God, um, of a God, not specifically our God. But um, we talked about, you know, that there has to be this this creator, this designer. Uh, there has to be this creature. Uh, creature is even too specific of a word. But there has to be this entity that created everything here. And we talked about 
a God. But tonight, we are going to be talking about the Christian God of the Christian Bible. Um, so we'll be talking about the process behind the Bible, the places mentioned in the Bible, and the people that are recorded in the Bible. The process, the places, and the people. And I learned so much doing the research for what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, and I hope this information is as helpful to you as it was for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we spend less time in your word than we normally do through this series, but God, we are very much in your truth. We are very much talking about the truth that is represented in your word, God. So guide this conversation tonight um, and help us to keep you at the center. Help us to understand why we believe what we believe and get closer to you tonight because we know more about you. It's in your precious name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Thank you for humoring me in that. Um, The first perspective that we're going to talk about that supports the reliability of the Christian Bible is the process that the Bible was put together, the process where the Bible was put together. So our Bible, if you don't know anything about the Christian Bible, that's okay. You don't have to understand everything to go to this church. I'm very glad because I get kicked out quickly. Um, But our Bible, if you don't know, is comprised of 66 little books. So you see one book. Um, If you need a Bible, I have just so many Bibles. Make sure you download an app, but also I'd encourage you to have a paper copy of the Bible in your home. Um, And I will even bookmark the Gospel of John, a great place to start. Um, But in this book, you're going to see one book, but you're going to turn to the contents, and you're going to see 66 other books called the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, it kind of brings up some questions. What are those 66 little books? If you're like me, you've wondered where those books came from. Like, why why isn't, like... The Hunger Games in the Bible too, right? <laughs> like, why are these books in here, these letters and prophecies, why are these ones included, but others weren't? You know, we, we can see the history of people like Abraham and Moses, but like there were other people in the world. Why don't we have their history? We can read about the prophecies of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, a whole lot of their prophecies. I'm reading some like right now, and it's just taking forever. They just prophesied their butts off. Um, But there are other prophets in here that get like a couple chapters, and you're like, what about those guys? Um, Did they not change the world for Jesus? They very much did. Why did some of the prophets get more attention? Why does it look like that? Some of the books in the Bible are letters, like I mentioned. So why do some letters make it in here? These weren't the only letters written in the world. Why are some in there and some aren't? Very, very big questions that I'm sure that you've had because I had them. Um, and the books in the Bible, we believe, are all inspired by God. Um, God breathed is a good interpretation of the, the Greek word we see in the Bible. God breathed. He breathed these words. He inspired the writers to write down the truth of the Bible. And that's a big theological statement. God decided what books were going to make up this book. God decided that, um, and he guided humans in the process of putting the 66 books together. The Old Testament was not very controversial. Pretty much people, uh, there's one big controversy about, you know, like the Catholic Bible might look a little bit different. But for the most part in Jesus' time, the Old Testament was understood. Um, they'd already been decided by the time Jesus showed up. It's the New Testament that I wonder, like this is pretty recent, recent history considering. It's only like 2,000 years, less than that years ago. Um, there was some disagreement in the early church as to what books should be considered inspired by God. 
And it's important to remember that there's only a little bit of disagreement. Like, for the most part, people understood which books were inspired by God and which weren't. Um, the earliest list that we have, like the earliest, basically, table of contents that we have of the New Testament, is called the Muratorian Fragment. And it's a piece of a document that was compiled in 70, uh, 170 AD. So only 170 years after Jesus, we have the first recorded list, what we think is the first recorded list of the New Testament. And it is the same as ours, except by five books. There are five differences in that list. And that's pretty good, considering, like, there's not a lot has changed. And at that time, there's lots of, there was, a li- not a lot, there was a little bit of disagreement. There's a couple different versions. So, like I said, uh, mostly widespread consensus um, that ratified the New Testament, but they did have some church councils that confirmed that list. And the first council that the, the New Testament we have today, the first church council that gave the same list that we have was the Council of Rome in 382 AD. Again, not that long considering the length of history after Jesus was here. We have the very same list that we have today. And this was done under Pope Damasus I. He oversaw this church council where they made a bunch of decisions about how the church was going to work. Uh, one of those decisions was determining the New Testament canon. And the list they had is the same list that we have today. And it was confirmed by several church councils after that, but 382. And I'll tell you, when I taught this two years ago, I did not say that. Believe it or not, I will make mistakes. And just because I have a microphone doesn't mean I'm always telling the truth. And in my research this time, I like was finding some mis- like some miscues. I don't know if there was some like recent findings that they changed what they thought about the Council of Laodicea, which is what I said last time. But from what I can tell, it was the Council of Rome is the first time they ratified the list that we have now. And if you're a nerd, that you're like real pumped about that. But if not, you don't care. That's fine. Um, so they had these church councils. And what's interesting about these church councils was that um, they were very careful and selective about, they were like super careful. They weren't just like throwing books in willy-nilly, like however they wanted. Um, it was, like I said, it was mostly widespread consensus that brought the list to them. Um, but when the officials got together to discuss the canon, they had the strict criteria about what, how they were going to process that that consensus that was all over the place. So they had the books, they had these uh, 27 books, but they also had several other books. And uh, some of these you may have heard of, but you probably haven't heard of most of this. But when they were looking to, to bring the New Testament together, they had the infancy gospel of James and the infancy gospel of Thomas, which told about Jesus's childhood. And uh, baby Jesus is something very interesting. And it's interesting to me and it was interesting to them, which is why we believe people made something up. <laughs> like, if you read the gospel, the infancy gospel of James and Thomas, you're going to be like, that's super weird. And that's because people made it up, which is why it's not in the Bible now. So you also have the gospel of the Ebionites, the gospel of Thomas, of Bartholomew, and Philip. You have letters from the Corinthian church to Paul. Like, we have two, church, two letters in here from Paul to the Corinthian church. But they wrote back. Um, so they had some of those, the early church. Uh, Corinthians 3 was like, whoa, there's a, this is a trilogy we're dealing with? We only got the first two in here. Um, they're actually the second and the fourth. Um, but that's neither here nor there. But we had letters from Paul to the Corinthian church that didn't make it in here. We have letters from Barnabas, from Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. Uh, a bunch of apocalypse books, like we have Revelation in our Bible. But there was like a bunch of different apocalypse books. And these church councils and the people in general were like, these ones are the written word of God. These ones are not. 
And this is some of the criteria that they had to meet to be included. And I know that some of you are like, but this is very important. This is history that happened. These church councils looked for prophetic authorship. Who wrote the book? That was a very, very important piece. The book had to be written by a prophet of God. It had to be either an eyewitness to the events that it describes or had to have eyewitness reports. So like the book of Luke, for instance, he was not an eyewitness, but he was gathering stories from eyewitnesses. So he had secondhand accounts. There was no he said, see, she said, seashells by the seashore. Um, these were eyewitness and reports of eyewitnesses that got in here. Nothing else. It had to be accepted at the time. Like I said, this is the uh, public opinion part. We had to understand accepted word of God. That narrowed it down considerably. It also had to have the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of the way the historians put it. Um, and that just means that these councils relied on God through this process. They prayed a lot. And maybe you've been praying your whole life and say, like, I don't really think that matters. It matters. Prayer is so, so important. God will speak to you. Um, He's, like, re-showing that to me in my life, like, recently. Like, he will be with you when you pray to him. Anyway, they were praying to God and asking for God's guidance as they put these pieces together. Um, And also, if a book didn't line up with the character of Jesus, then it didn't make it into the book because they knew Jesus. Like, a lot of these people, not the people that uh, were doing the councils, but, like, they had all these eyewitnesses that knew Jesus. If it didn't line up with the character of Jesus, for example, um, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas had this childhood of Jesus, baby Jesus, and he was like bullying other kids. And you read that and be like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. It's because it wasn't. <laughs> and therefore, that gospel did not make it into the Bible because we believe that it was not the inspired book, uh, the inspired words of God. Also, these books needed to have um, life-transforming potential. This is very subjective. But these people read the books and they said, this one has the power of God in it to change someone's life. And it's very, very subjective. But like I said, they were relying heavily. Uh, these were very godly people, these councils. These were rabbis and priests and like really godly people um, that were seeking God through the process. Another thing is um, that the process was very public. This was a public process, which was unique. Um, because they wanted to make sure that they were doing the work of God. And by being um, a public process, there was no secrets as they were having these councils, that meant that, that no one could influence them. Like the governor wasn't coming and be like, make sure you write, put my letter in there. Like, it's very important that mine's in there. It's no, no secrets were made. This was all a very public process so that the public could look in on it and see this is, there's no secrets here. There's no, nobody's playing games here. We really want to do God's work. Other religions, like, have secrets. They had a secretive process to put together their holy book. And that's something really unique about Christianity that we can say it was a public process. There was nobody was playing games. They wanted to do God's work. And I want to balance this because we really do need to be careful when we talk about this because we don't want to communicate that man chose what books to put in the Bible. These men relied on God so, so, so heavily. God did the choosing and he just showed us what books to put in here. There's an author and theologian, his name is J.I. Packer, and this is what he said. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Isaac Newton did not create gravity, he just discovered it, and these church councils did not create the New Testament canon. They just discovered which books were inspired by God. That's the process 
very interesting. Uh, and it, it, like I said, this research was very beneficial to me to see how this all was put together. That's the process. Another element that shows the reliability of the Christian Bible is the places that the Bible talks about. <clears throat> so before we even go into archaeology, I want to talk about the difference between observational and historical science. And observational science is observation. Observational science is what we can see. And this includes archaeology, experiments that we can actually do, stuff like that. Historical science is more based off of theories and things we can't see. We use the observational science that we have to do historical science. Um, The Bible is full of history. It's full of historical science. None of us were there for the creation of the universe. I sure was not there. But it is, it's historical science recorded in the Bible. And we use observational science to inform the historical science that we have. I say all that to say, um, archaeology is where observational science meets historical science. Archaeology is like a time machine. It's so, so cool that they can just dig up this past civilization and be like, there was a city here. <laughs> there was people here. Like, if you know anything about um, Pompeii, like, there was just this city that was just taken over by the lava of this volcano. There's people, like, barely running out of their houses because it happened so fast. And we can see his history through archaeology. So, so, so cool. And this is true, especially in the case of the Bible. We have this historical science in the Bible about people, about places. And archaeology makes discover- discoveries all over the ancient Near East that confirm what we see in the Bible, confirms that historical science, turns it into observational science. It's seen, it's tested, and it proves that that stuff in the Bible is fact. I'm going to make that point with a couple examples. There are so many archaeological finds that confirm the words of the Bible. Uh, we're going to start in Hezekiah's tunnel. This is so cool. Uh, it's in Jerusalem, and it reminds us that even the tiny historical details of the Bible are fact. And in 2 Kings 20.20, 20, it talks about a pool and a tunnel that Hezekiah built. And archaeologists found the pool, the pool of Salome. And it was, this pool was in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. So, so interesting. But what's cool is they were able to look at the Bible and the location of this pool and find Hezekiah's tunnel based off of where the Bible led them. So, so cool. So the Bible said, this is where the pool is, and you'll find the wall, this, or the tunnel, this far away from it, in this direction or something. And archaeologists use those details to find Hezekiah's tunnel. So, so cool. And then there's the broad wall in Jerusalem. Um, and this one was also built by King Hezekiah, and it's still in Jerusalem today. Um, some archaeologists disagreed with the Bible about Jerusalem. And this is an issue, because they were finding some things about Jerusalem that suggested that it was a tiny little town that did not impact the ancient Near East that much. The Bible records Jerusalem as like the hub, the center of the ancient Near East, like a really, really big deal. And archaeologists were like, this evidence is saying that that's not true. So um, they found the broad wall of Jerusalem. First of all, just finding it confirmed the Bible. That was super cool. Second, through finding this wall and using some other landmarks that they had in Jerusalem, they could tell how big the city of Jerusalem was. And it was exactly as big as the Bible said it was. And it was huge, implying it had significant impact on the ancient Near East. They had to change what they had been observing, because they thought they were observing things that made Jerusalem small. But then they found this wall, unlocked some other pieces of the puzzle, and they found, all right, Jerusalem was a big deal, and it confirmed what the Bible said about Jerusalem. 
We also have the Herodium, and this is a tomb, um, the tomb of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is not mentioned a ton in the Bible. He's mentioned only in Matthew 2, and uh, he dies right after Jesus is born. Luckily, the Bible is not the only source of history we have from that time. We have other accounts and records, and we know that Herod was a very self-absorbed man. <laughs> he really, really liked himself. And uh, he was a bad ruler. Most of the people hated him. And like when he died, he ordered like all these men to be killed so that somebody would cry the day he died. And people were like, we're not doing that. That's super crazy. And so everyone didn't really like Herod. But Herod liked himself enough for everyone. Um, so he actually built this giant monument to himself. <laughs> uh, and he named it after himself and called it the Herodium. So what's interesting about the Herodium is they found the Herodium right outside of Bethlehem. And that's significant because it lines up with the Bible because Herod in the Bible in Matthew 2 heard about Jesus being born. Now a baby being born, like Donald Trump does not be able to name every baby that was born. Like it was not a big deal. Babies are born all the time. But because we see the Herodium's proximity to Bethlehem, it makes sense that Herod could hear that this baby was born in Bethlehem. If they were across the world, you'd say, that, that never, there's no way that would happen. There was no texting at the time. Nobody like sent a snap and was like, yo, this baby in a manger. That didn't happen. So we know that Herod was close to Bethlehem, and that's how he could hear that Jesus was born. It implies, and archaeology shows us what the Bible implies here. We've got the process. We've got the places. And finally, we have the people of the Bible that confirm we can rely on the Bible as real live facts. Now, some people would say that David from the Old Testament was not a real person, that he's just a legend that they made up and put in this book. But we have all kinds of people talking about, um, including the Bible, talking about this man named King David. There was one archaeological find in particular that I came across while researching, uh, and the words, the house of David were written on this pillar. They were inscribed on this pillar until Dan. And um, it calls the dynasty that was ruling Jerusalem at the time the house of David. And it's right where it should have been, right about the time it should have been. It confirms what the Bible says, that King David ruled over Israel. And it reminds us that the people of the Bible are not made up. <laughs> These were real people that really walked the earth. We're not reading about stories and characters, but we're reading about historical events and people. That's a really big distinction. And I try to make my language reflect that. I try not to use a word like character or story. But these are historical events and historical people. Literal people that literally walked the literal earth. So King David is the guy from the Old Testament. Uh, if you fast forward like a thousand years, um, you're going to talk about Jesus. And how do we even know that Jesus was a real person and not a legend? Um, and there's not much I can say about this. All I can do is tell you about the people that mention Jesus' existence. Remember that the Bible is not the only historical record we have from that time. So we have all kinds of other historical uh, references to this man named Jesus. And one could say that the Bible could not be used to prove Jesus' existence. You could say, whoa, I got this book that talks all about him. But like, I could write a book about a person that doesn't exist and then use it to prove that person exists. That doesn't make sense. So you don't even need this to prove that Jesus was a real person. Let me uh, make a list for you. What's interesting is that there are pagans on this list. And a pagan is just a word used to, to describe someone who doesn't believe in God. There's many definitions. But people who absolutely hated Jesus were mentioning him in their historical records. They would never do that if he wasn't a real person. 
So if these people hated Christianity and hated um, everything that the, that the early church stood for, and they saw people were making up this man named Jesus, they would write down, people are making up this man Jesus. But they didn't. They wrote about a man named Jesus who did miracles. Craziness. So um, the first... Uh, the earliest secular writer we have is Thallus, and he wrote about Jesus in 52 AD. So soon, so close to Jesus walking the earth. Um, and we don't even have solid writings from Thallus, but we have him quoted in other people's writings. Um, and there are also, you know, Pliny the Younger, uh, Seutonius, Tacticus, Mara Bar Serpion, plenty more. These words are just gibberish to you. But they are people <laughs> that wrote about Jesus. Uh, there was a Greek, Greek guy named Phlegon, or Phlegon, and he wrote about Jesus sometime between 80 and 140 AD. And he specifically mentioned Jesus. This is not the Bible. This is a man specifically mentioning Jesus predicting the future. He's talking about a miracle that Jesus performed. Not a Christian talking about a miracle. Uh, again, if this was made up, he would just say, this guy tried to predict the future, but he was wrong. He didn't say that. <laughs> he said this man could predict the future. There's also this Jewish guy who absolutely hated Jesus. And his name is Josephus. And uh, he wrote about Jesus in 93 AD. He wrote about, in, wrote about Jesus in more detail than anyone else in history did. Uh, even though he hated Jesus, he wrote about Jesus' miracles. He didn't write about how these people are making up a guy named Jesus who does miracles. He wrote about a man who did ministry and who died and he wrote about the miracles of Jesus, all kinds of other details. And it's really interesting that he hated Jesus and Christianity. But in history, we have him acknowledging Jesus' existence. So that's a huge list. And like I said, a lot of those names are gibberish. Um, but they prove to me that Jesus was a real dude who walked this earth. And um, we know that even people that hated Christians, hated Christianity, talked about Jesus. So that leads me to believe that is evidence that the Christian Bible is fact, and Jesus was a real living person. That makes three really solid arguments that support the reliability of the Bible. And I, I recognize that not all of you are convinced, <laughs> um, but I hope that this is just some evidence that you can put in your arsenal to uh, maybe someday it'll get compounded and you'll believe in Jesus. But this is just some of the reasons that I believe in Jesus. So there's a lot of info tonight. Um, but we're making an important point. You know, as Christians, we have to know that we can trust this book. We have to know why we think this is real. And it's great to be able to answer the question, why do you even trust that old book? We should be able to articulate why we trust it. So tonight, we looked at three arguments. Uh, we talked about the process as to how the canon was put together. Um, the books were inspired by God. Their people confirmed the canon. They had careful selective criteria. Um, and there was a public process. There was no secrets. We talked about the places of the Bible, archaeology confirming the details of the Bible. You have Hezekiah's tunnel and the pool of Shalom. You have the broad wall of Jerusalem and then Herodium. Uh, and these places that were discovered in our time confirmed what the Bible says. And then we have the people of the Bible, archaeological confirmation of David existing. We have a, people writing about Jesus uh, in Jesus' time that would have had every reason to say he didn't exist if he wasn't real. We use David and Jesus as our examples there. The process, the places, and the people. If you could put a little altar music on back there. Before we finish up tonight, we got about 14 minutes. And I do want you to spend some time in your small groups. Um, I think I'm going to have you cut the recap because I'm going to do the recap right now. Uh, skip right to the questions when you do small groups because we're limited on time. But before we finish up, I want to recap what we talked about last week. Um, and the reason I'm saying this stuff over and over again is because I want it to stick real bad. 
So the last week we answered the question, how do we know that God exists? The first thing we talked about was the cosmological argument. It says that nothing can come from nothing. Um, we need a first cause to the universe, and we would say that God is a first cause. And we talked about the teleological argument that says that we are intelligent creation, and the existence of that requires an intelligent creator. We needed a creator to make us this... Um, we talked about evolution extensively and how that uh, we believe in microevolution. We can see that, but it's a process of losing information. So molecules to man, gaining information, we can't see that. Um, and finally, we, we saw the, or, the moral argument. All people are born with this universal morality for the most part, and it points to the work of a creative or of an intelligent creator or designer. So now we can combine those two things, and we, tonight we've shown that this book is reliable. I didn't do this last week because we haven't talked about the Bible yet. Last week we're talking about the existence of a God. But if we look to Genesis 1-1, we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the cosmological argument. <laughs> that is God being our first cause. You can see in Psalm 139, 13-14, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That is the teleological argument. That shows that God is an intelligent designer that created us. And we can see even the moral argument in Romans 2, 14-15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They just naturally know the law. They are a law for themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciousness also bearing witness. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. That's the moral argument, plain and simple, in the Word of God. So we can see that the Bible even confirms the arguments that we talked about for the existence of a God. This points to that God being our God, the Christian God of the Christian Bible. Last week at the end, uh, I said that it would be easy to stop here at the end of the information. And that I don't want to do that. And I did that last time and I regret it now. Um, because of two reasons that I, I found that apologetics is important. One is that so you can own your faith. So that Because it, you can't coast off the faith of your parents forever. It'll get you by as a kid. But when you start making decisions for yourself, Jesus will not be one of those decisions. You have to experience God for yourself. Have an apex moment with God for yourself. And then we talked about asking God, number two, asking God to give us a burden for people that don't have him. Give, give, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's been my prayer recently. It's so key for this next chapter of Apex. We talk a lot about, you know, being the friendliest place on earth in an in, in invitation culture, bringing people here to, to show them the love of God. And there's one thing where, you know, we're going to show them the love of God, but also we need to be afraid for their souls if they don't know Jesus. Because we believe in eternal life with God. But if you don't have God, the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And that's a very, very real thing that this book that we can trust talks about. Those are the two things that I really, really want to drive through home through these, these, uh, this series. And so in your small groups, you're going to talk about one of those things tonight. So I'm going to pray for your conversations when we break up in the small groups tonight, all right? Let's pray. God, thank you. I, I Thank you so much for what you're teaching me and what you're allowing me to teach these students about your word, about how we can trust what you said. You know, we, we are taught by our parents to believe all this. 
And when we start owning our faith, we're like, duh, this is why they believed it. Because it's true. Because it's real. And we can see in science that it's real. And I thank you so much for the wisdom that we can find in your word. And that you are so very real. And I can feel you. That I can do so much research and prove through arguments that A, God exists. That the Christian God of the Christian Bible exists. But also, I can experience you. Thank you so much for being so close to your creation, God. We love you, and we thank you. Father, I pray your blessing over the conversations that happen here in small groups, and that you just reveal truth. Uh, help us to be vulnerable and be real with each other, not to put on a face to look like a good Christian or look like a cool kid, but help us to just be real in these times, because that's what it's all about. We love you, God. We worship you, and I thank you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a gentleman, stay here in this room. If you're a lady, you can go out that door, and you're going to the next building over for your small groups. Thank you. We love you, and good night. This is Pastor Chris, and I want to thank you for listening into this Apex teaching. You can find more messages from all of our BMHA pastors at bmha.org. I pray that this message has impacted your life and that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus.